Hello, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, now, it's been a while since I recorded any of these. I had been working on writing for the last month or so, uh, writing a manuscript on Lovecraft, and I've made a lot of progress on that, but it's, you know, that manuscript's in a place where I can kind of set it aside for a while and, and get back to some of these podcasts. So this is going to start a series where we're going to look at nonfiction writing from, from essentially the, the 1920s. Uh, we'll start by going through the second volume of the selected letters of H.P. Lovecraft. These are the letters of 1925 to 1929. Uh, the letters from the early 20s were in the first volume, and I don't have that volume, obviously, but I did talk about some of them because uh, I had some notes on them in an earlier episode. I, I will also look at supernatural horror and literature. We'll, we'll look up some of his poems as well and any other writings from this era that are, that are relevant. But we're going to focus on the letters. And the way I'm going to do this, I know there's a podcast out there that looks at, like, we'll take like one of Lovecraft's letters and kind of dissect it and talk about it. Um, I'm going to try to do it in a, uh, in a... I'm going to do a different approach here. And what I'm going to do is take these letters kind of in chronological chunks, probably around 20 letters per episode, and then I'm going to like highlight the main themes in Lovecraft's life, in his thinking, who he's corresponding with, and, and move on from there. Um, and we'll see how it goes. Um, now, with the selected letters, of course, we're also not just dealing with Lovecraft's words. Uh, we don't have the words of the people he wrote to. There's been a lot of publications since that have given us kind of both sides of these conversations. Uh, I don't, I have like the Howard letters, but I know they're out there and they may be worth looking at. That's one issue. Another issue with these letters is they're, they're highly edited, um, sometimes for content, sometimes just uh, even language has changed a little bit. Most of the letters we get, we get fragments of or whatever the, the editors um, thought were important. The editors, by the way, were Donald Wandre and August Derleth. Um, so we get that, and of course we don't get all the letters. We only get selected letters, right? Ones that they deemed important. But I still think it's a, it's a great scholarly achievement. It's a very useful introduction into Lovecraft's thinking on various issues, and it does kind of show Lovecraft, warts and all, uh, you know, in his views, in how he expressed them to other people privately. So I think it's worth worth going through. Um, so, but I look forward to hearing what you have to say about the, these letters and what you think. Um, so uh, we'll start uh, the the letters we'll look at today. Cover the period roughly from February 1925 to October of 1925. So we're right in the kind of the the era of Lovecraft's New York adventure, right? So. That is, is sort of where we picked up, we're going to pick up here. So this was kind of a bad year for Lovecraft financially. He couldn't really, you know, do much for work. Uh, he, did, he continued to do some writing and things, but he, couldn't, he did have some odd jobs, but he couldn't find much. Um, and eventually his wife had to leave New York and took a job in Ohio and left him behind in Brooklyn. And so he spent some time alone in Brooklyn as well. So financially, kind of in terms of his family, it wasn't the best time for him but it was a time where he was really able to embrace this kind of the social aspect of his life he had a lot of friends in new york 
he was very engaged with these people. He often had, there was like a club there, like a boys club of his friends who he met with. He wrote them, um, but you know, a lot of what he writes about are, are these different meetings and, and arranging these meetings and things like that. So he was fairly well socially engaged in this New York circle. Now, we all know he didn't like New York very much. His stories show this quite well. His letters reinforce this also. But there was something in New York that, that, that I think filled in something for him, at least personally. Uh, something he would sustain through his letters later on, but you know he never quite had that day-to-day kind of contact with friends that he had uh, when he was living in New York. Okay, the the first letter we're going to look at, uh, February 16th, 1925, is to James F. Morton. Morton, uh, Morton was uh, one of the the more radical correspondents. You know, Lovecraft had a lot of conservative correspondence. We looked at that when we looked at the first volume of letters, like. Um, what was that guy named? Reinhard Kleinert. He, he was like, seemed to share a lot of Lovecraft's views. Uh, Morton is someone who is more oppositional. He was a bit of an anarchist. He embraced like the single tax system. He's more of an internationalist. So Morton was someone who, who was willing to kind of push Lovecraft on some of his racial ideas and his conservatism. Um, and as that comes up, we'll talk about them. But he's an important correspondent in this time in his... In, in Lovecraft's life. Uh, so this first letter, it's not, there's not much, too much to say. It's basically an invitation to a gathering uh, with uh, Frank Belknap uh, Long, um, Samuel Loveman, some others. Now what's notable about this letter is it's written in this kind of archaic 18th century style language. And he'll do this with people occasionally. He, you know, he he wanted to live in the 18th century. He said repeatedly in his letters that, you know, if he could choose when to live, it'd be like the 18th century Anglo, basically England. Um, and that's where he kind of had his personal connections to. He saw himself as part of this Anglo-American civilization. He regretted the American Revolution. So the 18th century was kind of his century. And I think I've already talked about how contradictory that is in a way, because that also was a very international period of, of world history. It wasn't just the Anglo-American empire. It was also the slave trade and the, the diverse settlement of the Americas and all that. But uh, that was his century. The other one would have been like like the Roman Republic. And he will get to letters where he talks about the Roman Republic too. But this letter is written in this kind of fake 18th century style. And that's that's one reason this letter might be interesting to some people. But mostly it's just an invitation to a, to a party. Okay, the second letter was written in March 1925. It's dated, in the selected letters, it's March 1926. I don't know if that's a mistake in the editor, a mistake in love by Lovecraft, or what, but it's misplaced. Uh, the date's wrong. But anyways, it's the next in the list. Um, he's just talking about here getting some new clothes and the cost of those clothes. He, he spent, I think it's $21, yeah. $21.50, quite a lot of money in that day, especially for someone like Lovecraft, um, for buying new clothes. But mostly he's expressing a lot of hostility and anger towards the local population of, of New York. Um, there'll be an incident later on we'll look at, either in this episode or the next one, where his clothing was stolen. Um, but here, there's a lot of like those bars where naughty words are kind of uh, implied. Um, quote, 
And if any blank blank thief touches this outfit, why by blank I'll smash his blank 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 for him with one fist while I pulverize his blank 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 with other with the other. Meanwhile, kicking him posteriorly with both feet in their most pointed shoes and manner, i.e., if I catch him. End quote. Um, so that's just uh, him having a little bit of fun, but also expressing a little bit of hostility towards uh, the local population who we tended to see as kind of rough immigrants, untrustworthy. And this is all going to be exacerbated when he's in, in, you know, his move to Brooklyn after, I think that's after Sonia Green left New York, that he moved to Brooklyn and in, in, in an immigrant community in Brooklyn, of course, famously described in the story, horror at, uh, at Red Hook. We get some vulgar language here. Um, yeah, but otherwise, uh, also there's mention here to envelope addressing, which he also swears about talking about. Uh, you know, he that was a job he often would take. He, you know, there's uh, later later on we get a little bit more detail about another job he gets, uh, envelope addressing, just as a way to kind of make ends meet. All right, the next letter is really the first a significant one with with a lot of material that we can sort of uh, talk about and, and think about a little bit. Um, this was written in April 21, 1925, or at least it was sent out then. Uh, often he wrote letters over several days, especially the long ones. Um, I'm not sure how long. To, you never know how long they are in these selected letters because they are edited down, unfortunately. Um, you know, famously he would write these 70-page letters to people. Um, and we often get a lot of them, but still, some things are edited out. Anyways, uh, now this is to uh, F.C. Clark. F.C. Clark... Uh, is one of his aunts uh, back in Providence. So I think she was in Providence at the time. Uh, he writes several letters to her when he's in New York. He doesn't write them when he letters to her when he's back in, in Providence, obviously. This this letter mostly discuss, discusses a trip he took to Washington, D.C. Um, you know, we get, you know, some pretty hostile language towards the riders on the on the street on the on the train uh, quote being admitted to our seats we found the company less promiscuous than the public nature of the vehicle led us to expect in finding a pleasing bench on the left hand side we proceeded to make ourselves comfortable my companion insisting that i take the seat next to the window since the route was new to me whilst he had been over it before end quote so not too hot i mean not too bad he says they were better than i thought but still he has this assumption of, of kind of a working class vulgarity on the on the train um, now, what this letter is, it's, it's, a, it's a good example of the kind of letters he wrote a lot, which would fully kind of really get into the architecture of a place. It's, it's actually some of the most enjoyable stuff to read from the letters because they are so full of kind of weird politics and social conservatism and racism. You know, that comes up again and again. But it is nice to read him meditating on something he knows a lot about, something he had a real passion for, and something he was fairly open-minded about. He really did love to go to other cities in the South. He does this when he goes to Quebec, when he talks about, uh, when he goes back to Providence, he takes a lot of these kind of weekend trips and summer trips around. And he would report to his friends about what he sees, often focusing on the architecture um, of these different areas. And it was something that he, he certainly knew a lot about, and it allowed him to really kind of cultivate his imagination about what would it, what would it be like to live in certain times, live in the past in, in different parts of the country. 
Uh, for instance, here we get him thinking about what it would be like to live in the South. Quote, And so I emerged from under the Roman arch and beheld the city. That morning sun was high and brilliant, and the summerish air told me at once that I had last at foot in that gentle old South of which I had so often dreamt. Green and white were omnipresent, springtime leaves and grass, and delectable expanses of ethereal cherry blossoms, which latter indeed were past their greatest profusion, and beginning to be replaced by the gay and multicolored flowers of the many gardens. The town brooding quietly and the Sabbath radiant, despite the herds of sightseers unloosed upon it, does not at first impress one. The monument is so distant and the sky so vacant of tall buildings and the ground so devoted to parks, malls, and wide spaces that one cannot gather the sense of compact and active life which usually associates with larger cities. End quote. So that's, that's Washington, D.C., I think. He also talks about Baltimore in this letter as well. Um, he's struck by the lack of tall buildings in Washington. He's struck by the, 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 how rural it seems. And, and of course, um, you know, that's still the case in Washington, D.C. There's not a whole lot of tall buildings. There might be like national security reasons for that. I don't know. Um, but it is, it is kind of a flatter city. Um, and in that time, it seemed that the countryside was not that far away from the city. Um, so mostly we got a lot here about the architecture of the cities and its history. And we also have his sort of fascination with the Georgian characteristics of, of Washington, D.C. And this is an adjective he throws around a lot when talking about architecture. Georgian, just a throw in, just, a re just replace it with 18th century, right? That's, that's the era he loved. That's the type of architecture he loved. That's kind of the architecture of Providence. Um, so Georgian is just that era of architecture that he was most into. And we have that here as well. So this is a nice letter. It's, it's a sweet little reminiscence about his trip to, to Washington, D.C. So worth, worth checking out. Okay, the next letter uh, is to Edgar J. Davis. It's May 1925. I don't know that much about Edgar J. Davis. Uh, he doesn't have like a Wikipedia entry to, to look up. I think he was a childhood friend of, of Lovecraft's. So not much to say here. He's responding to Davis having to stay in the hospital. And it's kind of a condolences about that. He talks about Sonia Green, his wife's illness at the time, uh, and how she was ill and how he felt about going to the hospital in Brooklyn and, and all that. His own time visiting his wife at the hospital. Um, he calls these, these hospitals the Temples of Hygieia, which is, is kind of an interesting classical reference to... to um, or just you know, using a classical reference to describe the hospitals. Um, but basically, it's a kind of a get well soon letter, not much more than that. Okay, moving on. Uh, same month, May 20, 1925, a letter again to F.C. Clark, to his aunt. So this is um, very, very personal, this letter, unlike the one that was a, more of a reflection on, on his trip to Washington. This letter is much, much more personal. It's about his own kind of struggles of living in New York, some of his day-to-day -day challenges, the, his, the necessity of his frugality, how he doesn't have money to, to eat or to eat out, and, and some of his strategies for making do with limited funds. Um, he mentions, you know, how difficult it is to do any book buying um, and the, you know, the expenses associated with that. But I think if you really wanted to kind of get into Lovecraft's life in New York, this is a good letter to glance at because he talks about, you know, just 
you know, how you even find like the food he can afford. So he talks about going to Fort Greene Park. Quote, there on a bench against the secluded Verdun slope, I read continuously all day, stopping only at twilight when I wended my homeward way, pausing at John's Spaghetti Place for my usual Sunday dinner of meatballs and spaghetti, vanilla ice cream and coffee. Incidentally, not many doors away on the other side of Lilbury Street, I found a restaurant which specializes in home-baked beans. It was closed on Sunday, but I'll have some, but I shall try it sometime soon. Beans, 15 cents, with pork, 20 cents. With Frankfurt sausages, 25 cents. Yes, here's a place which will repay investigation. So that, that's really coming from just his uh, lack of funds. Uh, and so he has to kind of economi economize with his, his dinners. He also talks about hiding from visitors, which is kind of a cute little story about how he's, you know, at home and, 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 and dining and people knocking. Again, again, we're reminded that he's not very isolated when he's in New York. He has a lot of friends nearby. He's got a lot of people coming by to see him. And he mentions, you know, how he has to hide uh, from time to time from visitors who, who come to, to see him. Uh, but the story here really is... Well, I think in this particular story, like Kirk and Longman, Loveman, two of his friends, come to see him. He tries to hide from them, but they come back the next day. He ends up visiting them, talking all night. But the story Lovecraft's trying to articulate to his aunt here is his goal of just a quiet night at home and how his time is sort of filled up with all these meetings with the literary club that he sort of formed, these different friends he has. And he also says, now this is kind of a nice letter. It, it's kind of sweet. It is tainted by his eagerness to leave New York, where when he says, quote, I want to see a real white man's town, uh, end quote, that's just him being Lovecraft, I guess, but it does kind of taint what's otherwise a, a pretty nice letter just about his day-to-day -day life in New York, New York City. All right, so next we have actually three letters, all to Clark. So these are all letters home. Uh, two of them are just three days apart. So these are really, again, just kind of his life and his day-to-day -day experiences in New York, kind of things you would write home about. Um, but the first of these really focuses on the theft of his clothes. This is, of course, a fairly famous incident in his life in, in New York. Quote, uh, the bad news is this, that while I slept, for it couldn't have been while I was in the alcove on account of the sounds I have instantly heard, my dressing alcove was entered either through the door to the next room or through my door by someone having a key and all of my suits except the thin blue my flat bush overcoat a wicker suitcase of sh loveman's rating material and i know not what else has been stolen um so this is a gonna this has gonna, gonna have a kind of a profound influ influence on him one is he literally doesn't really can't afford to like restock his wardrobe very much so he's kind of complaining about only having this thin blue suit to look respectable um but um but he's got a lot of anger about this anger towards his neighbors anger towards new york itself anger towards um you know well he's got this perception of the criminality of of new york but we're also told that this these clothes had a lot of personal i mean these were clothes he had for quite a while so he got some kind of personal attachment to them quote they knew the slender youth of old and expanded to accommodate the portly citizen of middle age i am condensed again to show the wizened shanks of old age you know once again lovecraft kind of joking about how old he is he does that a lot with people he writes especially younger writers like uh, long he often calls himself grandpa or whatever 
but anyways that's you know he's still kind of fuming about that um you know he talks a little bit here about what he's reading arthur macon's new story the shining pyramid um which he he rather likes um but mostly he talks about his desire to return to providence and his desire to, to really have a, a a real income right so those two letters were written really within three days of each other all in both in May of 1925 the next again very quick very soon turnaround uh, this one was written in June 5th 1925 talks about how he has to kind of avoid people because he still doesn't have any clothes his blue suit the one that he's sort of still wear is not in the best shape quote the blue trousers will soon be gone for their grievously thin threadbare and shiny in the seats and the cloth is worn around the edges of pockets showing bits of yellowish lining beneath uh, like you, I wouldn't believe that one could buy a decent suit for $25 nowadays, especially the two-trouser type. Um, so he's trying to think about buying new clothes and his need for a budget to buy clothes. So these three letters, they kind of go together. They're all kind of the aftermath of this clothes-stealing incident. But uh, not too much thematically for us, but um, uh, just just Lovecraft not liking his, not having a very good time in, in, in New York. Again, 1925 was kind of a rough year. I think socially, a kind of vibrant year for him, but uh, in a lot of other ways, um, pretty unfortunate. Um, so next, we have Maurice Moe. Maurice Moe is someone Lovecraft was writing for quite a while. Um, you know, he shows up a lot in the first volume of Selected Letters. Lovecraft, Lovecraft knew Moe Mo since 1914. Uh, he was a Wisconsin connection. He had a few in his life, um, but mostly a pen pal. Uh, he was part of that Galamo, Galomo circle uh, of, of early correspondence with uh, um, of Lovecraft, along with Reinhard Kleiner, Ira Cole, um, and of course more when Lovecraft were part of that. So kind of tied to that amateur journalist community early on. So. Um, this letter was written in June 15th, 1925, um, and it's a pretty substantial letter. It's one that you might want to, to focus on. Um, he, he talks a little bit about his wife's health, about Sonia Green's health, the threat of gallbladder surgery, um, you know, and then this kind of living his life without Sonia there in New York, how he has to kind of become the sole housekeeper, and a little bit about the conflicts between Sonia's kind of job offer in Cincinnati Lovecraft's moved to Brooklyn. So this is kind of like a lot of history from the previous year that's being related to Maurice Moe. I, I don't know when the previous letter to Moe was written, but it's filling in a lot of details. It seems like he hadn't written him for quite a while. So he talks about his wife's health, uh, the tension between her health and her desire and the family's need for her to pursue this job opportunity in Ohio, um, how this new job affected her health and all this and, and, you know, Lovecraft's move to Brooklyn, all that is kind of laid out here. Um, but I think most importantly is the way he talks about New York in this letter. Um, if I can find it for you. Uh, well, he writes this. Um, this is still when he's talking about his wife and her experiences. Quote, from the middle of February to the middle of March, she rested here then taking belatedly the advice of last October and seeing prolonged rural retirement, this time under ideal conditions in the household of a woman physician at Saratoga Springs. There she remained till a week ago when she returned hither for an indefinite period. 
She now seems fairly well, though easily fatigued. The turmoil and throngs of New York depress her, as they have begun to do me. And eventually we hope to clear out of this Babylonish burg for good. I find it a bore after the novelty of the museum skyline and bolder architecture effects have worn off, and hope to get back to New England for the rest of my life. The Boston district at first and later Providence, end quote. So the language here, Babylonish, Babylonish burb, burg, is, is one thing he would say about New York. Another thing he would tend to say would be something like Alexandrian. Kind of has the same almost meaning, and that is diverse and kind of uh, a civilization that's kind of has this barbarian influence or something, or is culturally mixed. Um, Alexandrian, I guess, is, you know, he's kind of referring there. He doesn't do it in this letter, but other ones he talks about it in this way. Alexandrian Empire was, of course, diverse because the Greeks conquered the Near East, conquered Persia and Egypt. And with that, you, this, this whole part of the world became a cross-currents of different cultures, right? Buddhism came in. You see the spread of all these different mystery religions and Greek traditions and Greek philosophy moving in. You have Greek cities popping up in Egypt and other places. So it becomes culturally very, very diverse. And this is something that bothered Lovecraft for reasons that I'm still not fully understanding. I, I sort of understand his theory of civilization. I don't understand why you wouldn't like that. Uh, I mean, I think the Alexandrian period is kind of fascinating. Um, so now, but Lovecraft, he doesn't just like sit in his house and mope about this. He does explore the outskirts of New York. He, he did explore the city, saw the museums. So he talks to Mo about how he's done that. Um, and then he also talks about his diet. In fact, he doesn't have a lot of money for food and the theft of his clothes. So he, he calls it the, the, the great robbery of, of May 24th. Uh, he gives it its own kind of name. Uh, so he repeats that. Um, that experience to, to Maurice Moe. So this is a nice letter that, that kind of sums up that history of what's been happening to him since, since coming to New York. So uh, next we have uh, Frank Belknap Long, um, uh, August 2nd, 1925. Uh, he's, of course, a writer, a younger contemporary of Lovecraft and a longtime pen pal of, of Lovecraft's. Uh, and he's a New Yorker, so he does write quite a few letters to him, even though I could have just sat down and talked. Um, but that's a good thing. We, we get these letters. Um, so this is the first one to really discuss his writing. Um, but, you know, it was, I think the New York adventure was good for Lovecraft writings. We get Horror at Red Hook, He, two pretty good stories, although they're both got race issues, certainly. We'll talk about those in future episodes. The Call of Cthulhu, I think that worldliness of it certainly was aided by uh, his time in New York. Um, and he talks about here trying to get horror from local settings. He talks about how important it is to try to get at a local community and how New York inspired him to, to think about the relationship between architecture and geography and horror. And he mentions writing the horror at Red Hook, which does this maybe more than any other story at the time, really tries to create a, a place in time and to draw horror from that. I mean, he, the story he is so kind of meta, it, you don't have the same impact. But Horror at Red Hook, I think, really does. I think that's actually going to be the very first story we look at when I come back to stories in a few weeks. Um, he talks a little bit about, like, Morton. Which it's interesting that sometimes you can feed in, feed in details of what the letters to Lovecraft were saying from how he responds to others. Uh, so Morton 
wants Lovecraft to kind of get him a job. Love, Morton's trying to give Lovecraft a job so he won't be so depressed and hungry and naked, not having clothes. And he says, like, you, you could serve on some museum, kind of on a trustee board. And, and I think Lovecraft wasn't really too interested in doing that. But there was this effort by Morton to, to do that. But I think the most important thing about this letter is how he talks about, uh, you know, f finding horror in the geography of New York and especially the neighborhoods, including the neighborhood that he, he's living in, you know, the Red Hook neighborhood. All right, next, uh, August 8th, 1925. This is too unknown. Now, possibly someone, some scholar has figured out, S.G. Josie or someone has figured out who this letter is to since uh, this time. I don't know. I don't care. Uh, it's to an unknown. Um, here we have him longing for New York some more. So it's, it's someone who would have appreciated or understood his desire to return to New York. He writes, quote, living among civilized people with old Yankee historical memories, end quote, is something he desires, something he really wants to get back to. Uh, quote, so in order to avoid the madness which leads to violence and suicide, I must cling to the few shreds of the old days and the old ways which are left to me, end quote. And this really reminds me of the story He, because He is kind of about that in a way. Um, so how does he hold on to his sanity? I certainly think he's over being overly dramatic here. I mean, he's, it's been a, a year or so he's not been in Providence. It's, I, I've lived in Asia for seven years and it's mostly... Yeah, I, I long for America too, but you know, I'm not like freaking out about it the way Lovecraft um, seems to. But let's assume he's telling the truth and that he is going slowly insane, dwelling in New York. How does he hold on to his sanity? Well, um, you know, it's really his physical surroundings, his furniture, his books. It, it's kind of a material uh, solution to this to this insanity that he's. That he's facing somehow he can kind of create uh, he's kind of talking about a man cave here I think a man cave of, of stuff he likes uh, of a providence a man cave themed a providence themed man cave in New York or something is keeping him sane um, but but he also admits there's a seduction of physical things there's a danger in that there's a danger in 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 surrounding oneself in such a way with physical things um, next letter, Frank Belknap Long again. Uh, this is August 10th, 1925. Um, basically, it's a discussion about the Boys Club, so I'm not going to say much about it. He's A lot of these letters from New York are about the managing of this, this kind of literary club he's formed in New York. This is one of those. He does discuss editing the United Amateur with, with Long and those experiences, but mostly it's a conversation about the meetings, about the boys club that he's essentially a part of. That's what I'm going to call it. I'll call it the boys club. Uh, it'll come up a few times here. Um, the next letter, uh, August 13th, 1925, is again to someone unknown. Um, so I don't know if it's the same unknown as in the previous letter. Um, but some good stuff here. Um, one is, you know, he's got a men he mentions something that Sonia uh, bought for him. Um, mostly, though, he talks about the architecture of, of New York, specifically Scott Park. Um, quote, Scott Park was the place I chose, and they are pleasantly intoxicated by the wealth of delicate and unmetropolitan greenery and the yellow and the white colonialism of the gambrel roof Scott House. I settled myself for work. 
Ideas welled up unbidden as never before for years, and the sunny actual scene soon blended into a purple and reddish red of a hellish midnight tale, a tale of cryptical horrors among tangles of antediluvian alleys in Greenwich Village, end quote. So what is this about? Well, the, the reason this letter's here and in this collection is because it's talking about the inspiration of his story, He. Um, so, um, and the he, story of He is basically about Lovecraft wandering Greenwich Village, runs into an antediluvian character, like literally like an 18th century throwback who survived, shows him a magic window, which lets him see the past, but also lets him see the future. And what you see is a, a, a future dead city, a destroyed city. And, and he, he talks about how he wrote this story, you know, based on this inspiration. Um, quote, I named it he and had it nearly done by three when my engagement called me back to Babylon. So again, using Babylon to refer to, to New York. All right, next we have a letter to uh, Ms. Alfred Galpin. I mean, Alfred Galpin was someone that Lovecraft wrote quite a lot. He was a composer, uh, one of Lovecraft's friends. Uh, so what's his wife's name? Looking here. Looking at the Wikipedia. I don't, oh, yeah, I don't see here. But anyways, this is his wife. That he's writing to. Uh, mostly discussion of personal issues and Sonia Green going going west. So maybe not that important of a letter. So it's not maybe worth digging up. But uh, this is our first mention of Alfred Galpin, who's someone that, that Lovecraft wrote quite a lot. Another Wisconsin connection, I believe. Um, so next, Clark Ashton Smith. Obviously, the writer and artist, Clark Ashton Smith, heavily influential. I don't think Lovecraft and Smith ever wrote, but heavy influence on each other. Smith, like... Uh, actually paint, drew the pictures in the first edition of The Lurking Fear, for instance. Um, Lovecraft often was encouraging Smith's work, his literary works and his artistic work. They were very, very close, and they, they, they shared a lot of ideas with each other. Um, so this letter is September 1925, mostly about Smith's drawings, about astronomy, and, and I think what Lovecraft likes about Smith's work is as described here is he says your work sort of is cosmic horror it's like the visual element of what he's trying to do in horror um quote your perspectives and manner are so far as i can see absolutely unique and i only wish your work could receive the attention it deserves from critics and literary historians um, quote most certainly the abysses of interspecial interstellar space form your providence par excellence so, and he's kind of encouraged other people to look at his paintings and, and buy them and encourage them. And he does think that New York is kind of open to art. And he, he actually thinks Smith might uh, do pretty well if he goes to New York for a showing. Um, so that's all. A lot of these letters are short in this selection. They get longer, trust me. Um, again, I think because so, so many of the people he later write long letters to we're in New York, so he just ha he just meets them. He just talks with them. So a lot of his letters in this period are much more about his, his daily life, a lot of things back home. Like this next letter, again, to F.C. Clark, uh, written over two days, September 12 and 13, 1925. Um, we only have a short selection of this letter. Um, only a few lines. I can read the whole, the whole selection here for you. Quote, 
As I've always said, missionaries are infernal nuisances who ought to be kept at home. Dull, solemn asses without scientific acumen or historical perspective and cursed with an eternal blindness to the obvious fact that different lands, races, and conditions naturally develop and demand different cultural standards, usages, and different ethical and social codes, end quote. Now that, even though it's very short, that little short selection, it's very important to how Lovecraft sees civilizations. He sees them as not, I don't want to say equal, but certainly separate. Sometimes he says, like, I don't want to say China's worse than the West or something like that. But he sort of thinks that. It's obvious he thinks that. But his point is that they're just so different that they really can't mix. It's like, you know, it's, I'm trying to think of two liquids that don't mix well together, you know, like oil and water or something, right? They don't, they don't, you can't form these solutions out of, out of certain things. They just separate and can't be unified. And so his point here is that missionaries trying to do that. Missionaries are trying to bring Christianity to a culture that's really not hardwired. It's almost like, yeah, maybe the metaphor here is you're trying to install um, software on a system that's not compatible with it, right? Christianity is compatible with Western culture. It's not compatible with others. Now, he's just wrong here about, like, the facts. Obviously, Christianity did spread into non-Western cultures quite well and, and thrived. And I think there's... You know, in fact, Christianity started out in the Near East. But whatever. Good letter, though. Or a good little segment of a letter. I don't know about the rest of the letter, but important. Um, next letter, just a few days later, two days later, also to F.C. Clark. Uh, more personal. Again, we don't know what was in that previous letter. Maybe there was more there, but... Um, it's, it, you know, he basically needs money, and he's answering ads trying to get jobs, um, you know, as a commercial writer. And he's just kind of frustrated at his, his writing, so um, a little bit more uh, yeah, not much to say there. All right. No, sorry. It's the next letter that talks about his frustration with writing. Anyways, that's September 20th, 1925, to Smith again. Uh, this one is pretty much, uh, at least the selection we have here, focusing mostly on Lovecraft's writing. Uh, he talks about a story he wrote in The Vault, which I'll talk about when we get back to stories. That's a, it's a horror story, but it's, it's much smaller than a lot of the other horror stories he wrote at the time. Basically about a guy who gets, you know, like a grave digger. I don't know, the story's about like those... Uh, winter vaults in graveyards because you know before modern times you couldn't dig the ground until spring so if you died in the winter you'd be kept in a vault until until the grave diggers could dig the dig, dig the earth um and it's a story about that which is a creepy thing um and but he gives smith a copy of the story for his advice and comments um we also hear him just have his general kind of frustration with his with his his writing. He's feeling that he's not getting his writing done. All right. Two more letters to talk about, both of whom, at least one of these, I think, is actually pretty important. But both of these are. Uh, maybe, of all the ones we looked at, maybe the richest kind of thematically. Um, the first is, again, to Smith. It's dated October 9th, 1925. And what this is about is occult traditions. And, and we've been talking a lot when we looked at Lovecraft stories about vernacular networks of knowledge, vernacular traditions, uh, how working class people kind of hold on to certain beliefs 
and, and carry them on, right? Now, Lovecraft wants to avoid talking about these kind of in a hackneyed way, like in the popular cult idea. He thinks that cult traditions are somehow deeper and more threatening and, and richer. Um, and he wants to explore some of the, quote, psychotic lunatic fringe. He, he actually is kind of mining Smith for a little information about uh, the, like the cra really crazy ideas that are out there. So he's trying to hope for some free occult books. Some of this letter is him sort of begging for an occult bibliography, titles at least, if not books themselves. Um, now, he says, now he doesn't believe in magic. Lovecraft doesn't believe in magic. Uh, personally, but as a writer, he wants to use magic as real. He wants to believe magic is real for literary purposes. So in, the, in, the, in a fictional sense, he wants magic to be real. And he talks about how he tries to do this in his story, The Horror at Red Hook, where he writes, quote, gangs of young loafers and herds of evil looking foreigners that one sees everywhere in New York, and quote, essentially embrace magic. Um, and that's where the horror comes, that this power that this power that's inherent in these traditions gets used for nefarious purposes by people whose motivations we cannot trust uh, because of their racial background or whatever. Now, he also asks for works about magic, not just the occult, works about magic. And he mentions Murray's book, The Witch Cult of Western in Western Europe. And he mentions it's often in his letters, so it's obviously a book he that influenced him. He read it. He said he read it about a year ago. Um, this book, Margaret Murray's book, argues essentially that the witches were real, right? And again, not magic per se. I think Murray, like Lovecraft, is essentially a skeptic about this. But the idea here is witches were real, which means an occult tradition was real, which means magic is real in kind of a social sense. People perform magic for some kind of nefarious evil purpose, perhaps. And that is real. And so the threat of these, quote, evil-looking foreigners who see, you see everywhere in New York is palpable. palpable. It's real. It's, it's something manifest in this world. Um, and I think what Lovecraft kind of does with this is says, what if these witch traditions carry on through magic, like in the, the Dreams of the Witch House, or just through traditions, like you see with the Call of Cthulhu. I think that's the creepy thing about the Call of Cthulhu, more so than that monster that gets beaten down by a fishing boat. But the fact that worldwide you have people believing this, carry on traditions, very, very dangerous traditions with dangerous beliefs. So, good letter here. I, I kind of wish we had more of it. Um, and next... Uh, to unknown, October 24th to 27th. The date in here suggests a very, very long letter, but we only have one paragraph, unfortunately. But it's all about class and race, uh, particularly clothing and class. Um, he talks about kind of the rabble on the New York streets, and he has his own personal goal, although he's not really able to do it because his clothes were stolen, to dress like Providence. And he, see, he's, he really talks here about clothing, how clothing speaks to class. And he wonders if this is conscious, conscious, conscious that people dress their class, or is it just class is somehow part of who you are, your DNA, and therefore you dress a certain way. 
Um, and he kind of uh, laments the rise of a, quote, definite American plebeian costume. He thinks that kind of American clothing is declining as the working class kind of has more of a more of a prominent social role. Um, quote, to quote the letter, it amuses me to see how some of these young, flashy boobs and foreigners spend fortunes on various kinds of expensive clothes, which they regard as evidence of meritorious tastes, but which in reality are their absurd social and aesthetic damnation. Being little short of placards screaming in bold letters, I am an ignorant peasant, I am a Mongol gutter rat, and I am a tasteless and unsophisticated yokel. And yet perhaps these creatures are not, after all, seeking to conform to the absolute artistic standard of gentle folk. Perhaps their object is entirely different, involving a recognition of their non-membership in the cultivated part of the community, and a desire simply to dress in accordance with the frankly different standards of their own candidly acknowledged type and class. Now, all I want to say about this, um, outside of the fact that he does kind of make this a racial thing later on in the letter, um, uh, talks about uh, growing peasant garb, uh, he, he sees this, uh, he talks about race stock, tied to that, a race class, the degradation of the Roman toga into the fussy gaudiness of the Byzantine mob, end quote. Wow. Eventually, as a whole civilization decays, this artistic corruption will spread to the upper classes as well as the herd, end quote. Now, what is he talking about in reality here? I mean, he's, he's kind of nuts here about clothing, but, you know, there was a cultural war in the 20s, urban versus rural. Immigrant versus kind of Anglo. Lovecraft's part of that cultural war. I, th I think we we have to we can't deny that. Fun, you know, that you saw in like the literary works of like F. Scott Fitzgerald on the one hand, and the you know like this the Monkey Trials, the the, the Scopes Monkey Trial on the other hand, or the rise of the KKK, KKK anti-immigrant, anti-Jewish, right, anti-urban in many ways. Yeah, there's kind of a culture war being fought. The rise of fundamentalism, religious fundamentalism, something Lovecraft didn't have much patience for. But I would say Lovecraft's on one side of this culture war, the, the anti-urban one. And fashions are changing. Styles are changing. You have the Great Migration. African Americans moving into cities, bringing with them new musical traditions and, and, and transforming American culture as they did so. You have people coming from across the seas changing the neighborhoods of, of areas of New York. And with that, you get changing customs of clothing. He doesn't talk about women here, but of course, this is the era of the flapper, right? And that's challenging traditional dress for women. So Lovecraft's kind of engaging in a culture war argument here. And, and he sees it through clothes. And, and it's a really great example of how he, he, he you know, his, his views on class, I think. And it morphs into this kind of racial rant. And this fear about the, the Byzantine mob kind of going to rise up and overthrow sophisticated American culture. So anyways, about these letters. Um, well, first of all, if this is any test, because these letters were fairly short compared to what's coming up. I don't know if I can do 20 letters in each future episode. I'm going to try to. Maybe I'll skip some letters that are maybe not as relevant, especially when we have a really long one with a lot of meat. Maybe I'll just I'll edit a little bit more, but we'll see how it goes. Um, but we have here Lovecraft's really experience in New York, uh, explored in many ways. His personal, his kind of how his philosophy is, is transformed. We see how his writing is transformed. We see uh, his, 
you know, his financial circumstances, his relationship with his wife, that's changing as she has to move to Cincinnati. Of course, they eventually divorce, um, largely because of that separation. We see him longing for Providence, which, of course, will be affected, I don't know, in the next episode. I think the whole next episode, you'll still be in New York. I'm not sure. But anyways, we'll get to that. So, um, yeah, that's it for now, I think. I think we got a lot of good things here to think about. So the next episode, we'll look at uh, the letters he wrote from November 1925 to May 1926. So, yeah, that's getting us, if not right to his return to Providence, pretty close to it. Um, yeah, I think by the end of the next episode, he's back in Providence. But that's the good thing there from the perspective of the letter writing is he writes a lot of letters to the friends he makes in New York. So that will be next time. So I will see you then. Let me know what you think, though. If you have an idea, an, added, an idea of how I can approach the letters, let me know. Um, I'm going to get into recording, but by the time this gets uploaded, I'll still have many letters to go. At least three whole volumes of selected letters, two volumes of the letters to, to Howard. That's what I have. Maybe I'll do some more. Um, I don't have the fifth volume with the selected letters. If anyone knows how I can get that, let me know. Um, direct message me, send me an email. I'd love to know how to get a hold of that. But for now, um, I'll just move on, continue to push on through the second volume of the selected letters. Um, if you want a copy of the letters, I can probably get one for you. Um, let, let me know. I can, I can see if I can find it for you. So uh, that'll be it. Um, yeah, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.